You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. It is the Martha Zoller Show, and of course, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas um, made the rounds yesterday, and here's what's happening. You know, you're not going to hear it anywhere else as clearly as this. President Biden has got terrible numbers all the way across the board. I mean, numbers that are very difficult to come back from a little over a year from the first primary, or really less than a year from the first primary, and a little over a year until the election. And, um, you know, his numbers are in the 30s or low 40s on just about everything. But if you look at things like the economy, managing the border, inflation, I mean, they are even worse than that. The only thing that's worse than President Biden's numbers are Kamala Harris's numbers, Kamala Harris's numbers. Now, we had a lady that called in last week and she didn't want to be on the show. And she was just giving Logan an earful on um, what was happening Uh, And how I was lying about Joe Biden and all this kind of stuff. No, here's the truth, people. The people that are lying about Joe Biden are the people that are going out and saying to Democratic um, sources and and those kinds of people that everything's great and he's passed all this wonderful spending and you've got the AJC jumping up and down about how a little place down in South Georgia has voted a union in and and President Biden is grabbing on to that as some kind of small win. And then he goes to Howard University and he says white supremacy is the biggest problem that we have. Um you know, and and he the people that are lying about Joe Biden are Joe Biden's supporters. And Joe Biden knows that he knows that his numbers are terrible. That's why kind of in the dead of night, right before Title 42 ended, they reinstituted by executive order a whole bunch of things that uh, President Trump did related to immigration. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to hear it here first is that things are going to get better at the border because they know they have to get them better at the border if he has any chance of being reelected so that he can go into the primary season going, look at all this improvement. Now, he continues to have people going out and saying that he's reduced the debt by $3 trillion. Okay, and that just continues to show that nobody in his administration knows the difference between debt and deficit. And for that reason alone, they all ought to be voted out. Okay, for that reason alone. And that's not partisan. That is economics 101. Yes, spending is down dramatically under Joe Biden because we're not doing the COVID spending, which was bipartisan spending. Yes, mostly under President Trump and some under, I think, Four trillion of it was under President Trump and one point nine trillion was under Biden. So of the six trillion dollars we allocated for covid, about a trillion dollars hasn't been spent. And the president could legitimately say that he reduced the debt by a trillion dollars if he accepted Kevin McCarthy's deal where they got rid of a trillion dollars of covid spending. He could legitimately say that. But let me just tell you for people what the difference is between debt and deficit. 
Okay. Deficit is, for example, and I'm going to give round numbers. Okay. You've got $100 million a year coming in, but you've got $120 million in expenses. So $20 million is the deficit. Okay. For that year. That goes into the debt column. That rolls over into the debt if you don't pay it back. The debt is the accumulation of deficits. Okay? But here's the trick, and this is why Joe Biden can't get this right, is that say, for example, a year comes along like we had a couple of years ago where he actually brought in more money than um, we actually spent out. Or, or we reduced the deficit. Okay, so say the deficit was like it was during one of the COVID years, a trillion dollars. The next year, the deficit is $500 million. Okay, it's reduced the deficit by $500 million, but it still increases the debt because you spent more than you took in. So the only way you reduce debt is if you spend less than you took in. The only years we have done that since 1970 are 1996, 97, 98, 99, and 2000, and 2018. Those are the only years since 1970 we have spent less than we took in. And if you look at the debt each year, it actually, on those five years, six years altogether, it was less debt than the year before. So, you know, just let me explain that example one more time. You have a trillion dollars, okay, in deficit. That means you spent a trillion dollars more than what you took in. The next year, you spent $500 million more, billion dollars more than what you took in. So, yes, you reduced the deficit by $500 billion, but you increased the debt by what you overspent, And in this example, it's $500 billion. And I say it slowly because even for somebody like me, the 64 and got 95% of my faculties, 63, I'm not 64 yet, almost. I have to say it slowly so I get it right. Okay? Because it is a little bit, it's not complicated, but it can be confusing because the words are similar, debt and deficit. And you people think, well, if I reduce the deficit by $500 billion, why doesn't that reduce the debt? It's all about how much did you spend over what you took in. It's like if Logan and I get a paycheck for $150 and we spend $200, then we have a deficit of $50. And we have created a debt of $50 unless we underspend in the next paycheck. So it's real simple. It's real simple, but it is a testament to the fact Joe Biden hasn't balanced his own checkbook since 1975. Okay? He became a senator in 1975. He was 29 years old when he was elected. He really never had a real job because he got out of law school when he was 26. When he was 29, he was elected to Senate and he's been in a political in a government job with the exception of the four years he was out of office when Trump was in office since then. Okay, he does not understand how the world works. We should never, ever, ever, ever put in office again. 
a person who has had no private business experience. Maybe Donald Trump isn't your cup of tea because he's probably had the most private business experience of anybody that's been in office. Maybe he's not your cup of tea. That's fine. That's fine. But we got a whole lot of people right now that are in the business. You've got Vivek Ramaswamy. You've got Tim Scott, who's had private business experience. Uh, Ron DeSantis, you know, I need to look that up because he's had some military experience. He's had uh, congressional experience. He's been a governor. I don't know if he's ever been in the business world or not. I'll take a look at that. But Ron DeSantis, we have a problem right now. Because Donald Trump is spending more money attacking Ron DeSantis than he spent basically attacking Joe Biden in the last presidential election. And DeSantis isn't even a candidate yet. And then you have muddied the waters with Robert Kennedy, who a friend of mine posted on Twitter today. And I'm going to do some digging into this, that you may get more bleed over from independent conservatives to Robert Kennedy than Democrats going over to Robert Kennedy. So we'll see what happens with that. I mean, again, all you got to do is look at who the enemies of these people are and you can see what they're afraid of. Robert Kennedy's got all the mainstream media saying he's a kook and it's because they're afraid that he can actually mount a defeat of Joe Biden. You know, they're afraid of that. It's, it's really, really interesting to watch. So bottom line is just that what you need to know about this. Joe Biden knows that his numbers are terrible. They're terrible. If you're a Democrat and you believe anything other than that, you are lying to yourself. Okay? Other than the fact he spent a whole bunch of money, he has had nothing but bad numbers. He is currently, if you watch, you know, I always say this, watch it, wait for it. He has made some major changes in how he's approaching the border. He's being Trumpian in how he is approaching the border. And all of a sudden, guess what? He's getting some progress there. It's making some progress. And we still haven't seen Kamala Harris anywhere. If you're going to vote your pocketbook, you're not going to vote for Joe Biden. That's just the way it is. I mean, if you vote for Joe Biden, you are blindly voting for somebody because there is a D behind your name. And I would say the same thing. And in the next segment, I'm going to give you just kind of a layout of what's going on with Trump and with DeSantis and all of that. Because we got the same problem going on on our side. We're just not in the White House right now. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Senator Joe Lieberman is joining me right now. He is a former senator. He's a former vice presidential candidate, uh, a very bipartisan kind of guy, and uh, was a Democrat for most of his career and then was an independent in the final part of his career. He started a group uh, or was part of starting a group called No Labels. Welcome back to the program, Senator Lieberman. Hey, thanks, Martha. Great to be back with you. You sound great. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I want to ask you before we get into the no labels stuff is that you know all the players that are involved in this debt ceiling negotiation right now. And, you know, my perception is that Senator Schumer's kind of modus operandi is he kind of likes to push things to the last minute and then, 
get things. I mean, at least looking at him over the past, he likes to push things to the last minute. You've got the Republicans doing something in the House that I think no one expected them to do, which was to cobble together their very small uh, majority and come forward with a plan. Um, And then President Biden initially had said the only thing he would entertain is a debt ceiling increase. But when he served with you and lots of other times, he negotiated. And generally, when we have divided power, there's negotiations that go on. So I'd love your sense of what you're watching as it relates to this debt ceiling negotiation. Uh, you know, real good question. Important question. Glad to try to answer it from um, my experience. So, um, you know, this is not the first time this has happened about the de- around the debt ceiling. Look, from er- from a long time ago, when I first came to the Senate in 1989, 1990, the, the budget financial questions are, are the toughest. And I, I remember in the fall of 1990, we had a, a real uh, standoff with the first Bush administration. And anyway, uh, look, uh, number one, the debt ceiling has to be extended. I can't say it uh, too graphically, but it would be a catastrophe for the country and for individuals in the country, I'm afraid it would lose their jobs. Um, uh, prices would be affected. It, it would be uh, mortgages. It would be awful. It's just, it's just, uh, it would be totally irresponsible uh, to let it happen. So my uh, prediction the, is the, they're going to come up with a deal right before Memorial Day. That's my prediction because that's what they seem to love to wait until the last minute, no matter who's in yeah, power. Um, but yeah. but it yes. shouldn't. But I I do think the president gave two things in his press conference where he said he'd be willing to look at the COVID money that hadn't been spent yet, and I also right. think Kevin McCarthy has put a couple of things in that deal that he's going to give back to the Democrats so that they can say they got something back. Yeah, I I agree. Right now, uh, Martha, I'd say the process is working, uh, and hopefully, it's a model for things that would be less catastrophic if they don't negotiate and compromise. But because that's the way uh, the legislative process, that's where federal government works. I give Kevin McCarthy credit that he actually cobbled together enough votes in a very closely uh, divided House to get a majority to put a proposal forward. Nobody thought that proposal or thinks would go as it is, but uh, it makes the point that, uh, and I think it's a good one, that uh, uh, President Biden's right, We have, and everybody's right, we have to extend the debt ceiling. But uh, Kevin McCarthy is also right that uh, it's not so bad to take this opportunity, in my opinion, to begin to put some controls on spending because it's out of sight. I mean, think about it. We're extending the debt ceiling beyond $31.4 trillion dollars it's when i was there uh, it was inconceivable uh, unimaginable that we reached that high so i i think we're going to end up with something pretty good we, we could be surprised uh, martha that it actually happens uh, well, before it's, memorial it's so funny yeah. because um i'm with you i mean i remember when we crossed a trillion dollars okay and we're now at 31 trillion yeah. and and look a lot of it a lot of the more recent debt came from COVID and all the spending around that. And, you know, there were this proposal that McCarthy put together was like 2021 spending levels, which wasn't that long ago. You know what I mean? And, 
And then Rand Paul, who I usually agree with on nothing, because I just think he's a little too eclectic for me, um, even though I'm a Republican, he said if we went back to 2019 spending, we could actually balance the budget and then have discussions about what needed to be added in. And I actually thought that was a pretty reasonable a reasonable thing to put forward. I, that was BC before COVID. It made sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I it, look, uh, I'm glad he's back. Uh, Rand Paul is smart, uh, and I disagree with uh, uh, probably more than half the things he says. But every now and then, something he says makes sense. But my guess is that 2019 is too far uh, for the Democrats to go. Yes. But I, I, I'm encouraged right now that they're going to reach an agreement and um, maybe earlier than Memorial Day. That would be good, uh, good for the country, good for the economy, good for every single American. So let's hope and pray that they uh, they do it. So tell me what's going on with no labels, because you guys have been in the news a little bit lately with some misinformation. Yeah, well, uh, you know, no labels quickly started uh, about 12 years ago, all uh, and the purpose trying to uh, somehow break down the partisanship uh, and tribal warfare in Washington. It was making it hard for um, presidents, congresses to to get anything done for the people of the country who, who sent them, us there. And uh, we started to focus a lot on electing uh, centrist Republicans and Democrats to the House and Senate. We did pretty well at them. I mean, uh, giving them ideas. Uh, uh, giving them workers and, and uh, uh, trying to raise money for them. So if they stepped out on their own and were just a little bit bipartisan instead of uh, rabidly partisan, and the parties uh, threaten not to give them any money, that we try to raise the money. 60 members of the House Problem Solvers Caucus, now 30 Republicans, 30 Democrats, about 10 senators in the uh, what we call the Common Sense Coalition. They really made a difference. So, but the, all the publicity now is around a, a project with, that we call our, our 2024 insurance policy. Uh, and I'm surprised we're doing it, but it's very logical and I support it totally, which is in the end, we're not going to really have um, bipartisan government that solves the, the America's problems unless we have a president uh, who will do that. And um, uh, we're just worried that a a replay of the Trump-Biden election is going to be another attack, counterattack, partisan campaign, and not Uh, much better regard. I'm a a conservative Republican, and you and I probably disagree on a lot of things policy-wise. But we like each other, we respect each other, and all of that. But i got to tell you, I am terrified that a Trump-Biden rematch is going to so depress the turnout for president that, uh, you know, people are going to be very frustrated. I like the fact there's a lot of candidates out there. People were talking about, oh, we're not hearing much about these candidates. I said, well, they're doing, some of them are doing the right things. They're going to early states because if you can do an upset in an early state, you can create some traction, right? And, um, you know, I'm... I, I think there's a lot of good voices out there right now, actually. No, I agree. I mean, in the Republican Party, you, certainly you got Nikki Haley, you got uh, Governor DeSantis, and uh, you got Tom Scott, probably. Uh, and I think you probably have Chris Christie and maybe uh, some others. Um, obviously, it's important 
um, if uh, the, uh, somebody other than Donald Trump is going to get uh, renominated by the Republicans, that it come down to Trump and one other. And hopefully that'll be worked out in the early uh, primaries. On the Democratic side right now, uh, no other challenges. But I got to tell you, if President Biden's polling numbers remain as low as they are, and as many people are worried about, fairly or unfairly, about his age, uh, at some point, somebody besides Robert Kennedy uh, Jr. is going to challenge him in the Democratic primary. And look, No Labels is trying to get ready in case that all doesn't work out to actually run something that America hasn't seen in a long, well, hundred and almost uh, almost 200 years, uh, a bipartisan national ticket. What a statement to, to break the current gridlock. Uh, one Republican, one Democrat running on a centrist program to unite the country and get things done. If we don't do that because we don't think we can win or we think we'll spoil it for one or the other candidate, particularly I don't think our members want to help inadvertently reelect Donald no, Trump, I, then... I think what you're yeah. doing, though, that's important, and I know we only have about three more minutes left with you, but I yeah. think what you're doing is important because uh, we used to have parties that bubbled up. And the one thing that the two parties have agreed on since World War II is they don't want anybody else at the table. And and they've made it really difficult for the natural progression of a new party to come up. And I think you're I mean, you're fighting the good fight on this, Senator Lieberman. I think it's I think it's something that we need to work on. Thanks, Martha. I really appreciate it. I tell you this right now, we're totally focused on qualifying on all 50 uh, state ballots, plus the District of Columbia with a third uh, ticket line. It's not easy because every state has different uh, requirements, but we're making real progress. And uh, that's that's gonna be a real asset that we will either uh, use to run a third party ticket or, or we'll, we'll try to leverage it to try to bring one or both of the major political parties um, back toward the center because just as you say, the parties used to organize people into majorities that created more unity in the country and got things done when they compromised with each other. Today, they're the, they're the single greatest force dividing the American people and stopping our government from solving our problems. And that's why we're, we're getting ready to take them on in uh, both parties in 2024 if we have to. I appreciate what you said, Martha, and I'm glad that Come back on and talk to you again as this year goes on. Absolutely. It's nolabels.org if you want more information. Um, And we're going to keep talking about all of these issues. Thank you so much for being with us, Senator Lieberman. Pleasure. Have a good day. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. We wanted to invite Justin Gibney back, and uh, Justin is the co-founder of the AND campaign, and he's an attorney. He's a political strategist in Atlanta, Georgia. He served as a delegate for the Democratic National Convention and as the co-chair of Obama for America's Gen 44 Atlanta Initiative. And um, he's a guy that talks about faith, and he's a person that... Uh, talks about things not just in red and blue, white or black, in or out. And I had such a great time talking with him last time. Uh, I wanted to invite him back. Justin, welcome back to the program. 
Hey, Martha. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So I wanted to have you back on after the Midtown shooting um, because there's, of course, after every one of these events, um, there's a cry for changes in laws. And I wanted to just have a conversation about uh, in, you know, within your circle, because I would say you're probably a progressive circle, but you're but you as you say in a lot of your writings, don't assume we're not conservative about certain things um, kind of things. So what are you hearing in your community, first of all? And then let's talk a little bit about gun policy. Yeah, I mean, people are, are worried. Uh, people are, are scared. Uh, there seems to be a spirit of violence uh, in our country that is I don't I don't I don't know how you couldn't you know somebody couldn't be worried about it. Uh, so, yeah, pe- people uh, think that something needs to be done. I think it's something that needs to be done from a policy standpoint, for sure. But also, I think the polarization and how we view one another keeps us from taking other measures that are really needed if our if our uh, culture is going to grow and, and become one where we can where we can live together and not have to worry about these things. So, Justin, I think you're a lot younger than I am. And um, I was a teenager in the 70s. And in the 70s, we went through a cycle and I'm not not discounting anything that's happening now, but we went through a cycle where we had between the mid 60s and early 70s, we had three political assassinations in our country. We had um, a lot of violence in the streets. Um, people were leaving the cities and moving to the suburbs. Now they're kind of leaving cities and moving to whole other states. Um, we had a president that left under controversial circumstances, a one-term president, yet remains to be seen whether President Biden's going to be a one-term or a two-term. And then we had sort of this getting out of this cycle, which I don't, I'm not saying it's a Republican. It was Ronald Reagan in the case of the 70s that kind of brought us out. But it was, it it feels similar. I mean, New York was a mess. I mean, I love New York, but you couldn't walk down the street in New York City and it was safe. I mean, it was very, very similar to what it feels like right now. And if you go back 50 years before that, in the 20s, it was very similar. Big difference is you didn't have 24-hour news. You didn't have you know, everybody had a camera on their phone. You didn't have. So it does feel like these things are happening everywhere all the time. Right. Because you mm-hmm. see them where you wouldn't have seen them if they weren't happening yeah. in your own town before. Yeah. Um, and I think that that messes with our psyche a little bit. Um, if you look at gunshot deaths in America, the last numbers they have are 2021. And it was 48,000 deaths, which is astronomical. Half of those are suicides. Another 20% or so are kind of what I call love triangle kind of things. The kind of uh, where people that know each other and it ends up in a murder-suicide kind of situation. Then you have the one-on-one gun violence. And then you have what's called um, mass shootings. And and it's, it's I'm not discounting it. I'm just saying a large share of gunshot deaths are suicides. And I think you can't look at gun policy without the mental health aspect of it. Oh, I I certainly agree. I I mean, you said a a few things that make a lot of sense within that. Number one is the historical context. Uh, I do think that media today and social media kind of messes with our understanding of kind of proximity and, and, and how often certain things are happening. 
uh, proportion, right, proximity and proportion. Uh, so that could be a little bit off. Uh, we do see some cycles of of violence and, and these type of, especially political uh, issues and, and, and um, this type of polarization is not the first time that we've seen something similar. But even with the historical context, I would, you know, we don't, and I, I'm not saying you're trying to do this, but we don't want to dismiss some of these awful things that are happening within our country that aren't necessarily happening other places, right? So it's not just a comparison to what has happened here before, but it's a comparison to what's not happening in some other places and the understanding that we we got to believe that we can do better because every life matters. Uh, you know, there, there are, whether we want to call them copycat or whatever, you know, folks going into these shoot schools, shooting up schools is not acceptable. And so whereas I am a gun owner, uh, I understand the importance of self-defense, especially given the history of, of, of my people, uh, I do think we can be sensible and that we can sit down together and not be so ready to fight or to prove ourselves to our bases, but say, what is the best way forward with this? You make a point that it can be overspoken about what some of these regulations can do or where we've been before or even the numbers and how they can maybe be blown out of proportion. I think we can agree that all of it is too much and that there probably are uh, steps that we can take uh, to make this better. No, I I agree, and I think it it it's not just policy. It's church families. It's actual families. It's help that needs. If you look at two of these very high profile cases, if you look at the Newtown shooting that happened under the Obama, and while President Obama was in office, this was a young man who was very disturbed that somehow his parents went around laws. He wasn't old enough to own guns. They bought the guns for him because they thought it would pacify him in some way. Okay, and what ultimately ended up happening is he killed his mother first and then went to Newtown school and killed those those children. Okay, so there were laws in place. In fact, Connecticut had very strict gun laws and they were ignored or they were gotten around. Same thing, Parkland down in Parkland, that young man um had been a part of the foster care system. He had been in 11 homes. He had finally found a home that, and I'm not justifying him or being sympathetic to him, but he had finally found a home that he was comfortable in. And then his foster mother died of cancer right around the time he was aging out of the system. He reached out for help. They told him, sorry, you've aged out. There's nothing for you. Now, Georgia and Florida have changed those laws since this happened. As a result of this, there is now more services for foster kids in that 18 to 24 range. But this young man reached out for help. He was having mental health problems. He reached out for help, and there was nothing for him. And a month later, he committed the Parkland shooting. Um, so there's a. it's complex, isn't it? It's complex. Yeah, policymaking is always a very complex, and th- there's no law. I mean, with, with some of these issues, I don't know that there's any law that's going to solve all those problems. We can always point out an instance where the law missed. I don't think that should stop us from doing what we can. Trying to within, make it better. Yeah. Yeah, within the framework of the Second Amendment, within the, you know, within the concerns of what people are saying to say, are we really sitting down to make this better, or are we so polarized that if I'm on the right, I'm going to do anything I can just to make sure there's no limits. And if I'm on the left, I'm going to do everything I can to at some point take all, you know, take all guns away. That's why there's a lack of trust because there's a lack of working in good faith. And I think that's what I'm asking for. I think we can sit down, not look at the activists on the other side because the activists on the other side can sometimes be jaded. And that, that those aren't the people that we should be thinking of when we think of making these changes. 
thinking of the victims and thinking of the people who are in unstable situations, whether it's from mental health or, or, or health or whether it's from violence, and saying, what can we do to make this better? And I think, you know, especially people of faith certainly have an obligation to look at it that way instead of in a partisan way. You know, last week there was a clip that went around of John Stewart, you know, kind of, um, you know, playing gotcha with this uh, Republican politician about what's the number one killer of children in America. And, um, you know, he, of course, was his position was that gunshot deaths are the number one killer of children in America. Well, I would argue uh, fentanyl deaths have gone from uh, they were one hundred thousand last year. They're probably going to pass one hundred twenty thousand this year. And I would be willing to bet a lot of those are yet people under 18 years old. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I am a pro-life person. I'm a reasonable pro-life person. But, you know, to make a statement like that and not to acknowledge that a lot more children are killed through abortion than gunshot. Um, you know, it's, it's, he has an agenda. He wants gun laws. Okay. And that's okay. But you've got to be able to talk about the whole thing. I mean, if a woman is murdered, who is pregnant, the state looks at that as two counts of murder. (laughs) And, and so we've got to start and you're right. We've got to come to the table as reasonable people and we have got to be respectful of all points of view, but figure out what the best policy is. Yeah, and, and it's less about coming up with counterpoints, right? I, I think we all can come up with counterpoints yes. all day, whether they're whether they're true or not. Um, nobody on the other side is li- like nobody on the other side of the argument listened to what he had to say because they knew he was just coming with counterpoints, <laughs> and that's why you know I respect what what you're doing because you enter into the conversation with a level of intellectual honesty that I can believe what you're saying, that your your principles are more important than you proving that the other side is completely wrong. And until we get more people, especially our leaders and politicians, to step into conversations with intellectual honesty and not just counterpoints, we all can come up with counterpoints, and there's not enough fact-checking to, you know, to, to make us stop. But if we want to solve things, people have to know that we're willing to go against the narrative on our side. And I appreciate that you do that. I try to do that the same, but I don't I don't see these conversations going forward in a constructive way without more people stepping into the discourse in that way. Yeah. And I tell you, it's it's funny. I was in Ireland a few weeks ago and um, there is a big monument to President Obama and Mrs. Obama um, in a little museum because he came to visit Ireland during a period of time while he was president. And, you know, what I think is really interesting looking back at President Obama is I think he was a pretty progressive guy. I think that as far as him personally, he was very progressive. But I think mm-hmm. that he allowed people to enter into the conversation around him that weren't as progressive and that he governed. In, I wouldn't say governed in a moderate way because I'm a pretty conservative Republican, but he governed in a more left of center way than a far left way as far as the yeah. way he governed. And I just want to see more of that. You know, the the thing that disturbs me the most about President Biden is that he was a more moderate guy that I think is governing in a more uh, progressive way. And I think that it, you know, it bothers me. But, you know, I know you that's not yeah. your discussion, but I know, you know, President Obama. So I thought I would share that with you. Well, there's something to that. I think when it comes to Obama, he certainly was more liberal in his posture than he was progressive, right? So today there's a very progressive um, 
posture that's not really about hearing everybody out, right? It's about it's more so, hey, we're right, and then push everybody out. And so we're I on the right see, side of history. I'm yeah, so sick I, of I hearing do think that. You see that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, I do think you see that with Obama, and that's one of the things that I respected about him too. Uh, had a lot of agreements uh, with him. Had some disagreements. Biden, I think, naturally is the same way. I think staffers and things like that have changed, and and so I think the pressure has changed too around him. And so the language that we see sometimes coming out of administration is very different. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I do see that see that difference, acknowledge it. And, and I'm, I can't say that I'm happy about that change, right, because I think for, for both sides, the best way to go about it is being willing to respect what other people have to say and then winning the argument based on its merits. Uh, that, that's what I want to get to. I'm, I'm not suggesting that there's some sort of false equivalence or we all can be right. No, there's, there's sometimes a right and wrong position, but you only find that through discussing its merits and not and not through pushing people out of the conversation. Justin Gibney, if people want to know more about you and what you're doing, how can they do that? Sure. You can go to uh, andcampaign.org. That's my organization, the and campaign, andcampaign.org. Or you can uh, see some of my work on Twitter or um, Instagram at Justin E. Gibney. Thank you so much for being with us today. We'll have another discussion like this. We'll have to get you up to Gainesville sometime. Let's do it. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Welcome back to the Martha Zoller Show. It is always great to talk to Marsha Blackburn. Senator Marsha Blackburn has been a friend of mine for many years, and she is always on the cutting edge of the issues that are important. Welcome back to the program, Senator Blackburn. I am so delighted to join you. Thank you so much. Always good to talk to you. So we're going to talk about the Kids Online Safety Act and the debt deal, but I got to talk to you first about this Durham report because yesterday you interviewed, or this week you interviewed Dennis McDonough, who was the uh, chief of staff for President Obama, and he showed up in that report but couldn't recall what how he was involved tell us a little bit about that yes we were having a veterans affairs committee hearing and he is now the secretary of veterans affairs we all know that he was uh the chief of staff for obama during from 2013 to 2017 So I was um, going through my questioning at Veterans Affairs Committee, and I asked him uh, at the end of my questioning, I said, look, I've got to ask you about this because it is terribly disappointing to me to read a report and to realize that you were in a meeting in 2016 in the Situation Room at the White House where you supported carrying out this Russia collusion hoax against Donald Trump. And what you all were were conniving to do was finding a way to weaponize the government against a private citizen who had stood up and said, I want to run for president. They were running a campaign, and all of a sudden this candidate was getting in the way of your guy, uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and what they wanted to carry out. So I, I, I went at him with that. Now, all of a sudden, he couldn't recall any of this. He couldn't recall being in that meeting. And he so he's going to he's, he's get back to you, right? Yeah, 
going to get back to me on all of this. You know, he just could not recall if he ever met with the FBI and discussed this. So it is astounding the lack of recall that these individuals have when it has been reported, others have reported, he has been cited in that meeting. And now, here, you've got this cast of characters, if you will, and they are fully in charge of this government with Joe Biden. And they're the ones that, you know, Hillary came up with this. They met. They decided how to implement it. They used the FBI, the DOJ. They weaponized those agencies against a private citizen. And the problem is they fully believe in two tiers of justice. They believe in two tiers of accountability. They believe in two tiers of approach. And that government should be there for the wealthy, the powerful, the few. And we should be just cogs in the wheel to them and their desires. I find this just so despicable. So it does appear that Merrick Garland released this report without redaction. And the cynical side of me says he did that because Durham said he really wasn't looking for any prosecutions or any criminal charges. Uh, I'd like to think he wanted the whole thing to be out there. Uh, But what do you think are going to be next steps as it relates to the Durham report? You're primarily going to see the court of public opinion takes a lead on this, Martha, because this DOJ is not going to prosecute these people. But they need to be and have to be held accountable for what they did. So a new DOJ, a new attorney general, uh, Republicans taking control of the Senate. And for your listeners, if there is any reason for them to vote for a Republican for the U.S. Senate, this should be it to get rid of this two tiers of justice and to return us to equal justice for all. Do you think there's going to be a debt limit deal? Are we, do you feel more confident? I do think there will be a debt limit deal. I'm not sure it's going to come in the next week. I think it's probably going to be uh, more toward the end of the next couple of weeks. Uh, I think they'll soft pedal until then. But I give... Speaker McCarthy, a lot of credit. He has forced the issue and has forced these individuals to show up at the table and negotiate. And he's been tough on Biden. And that's a good thing. You know, I mean, I got to tell you, I wasn't the biggest fan of Kevin McCarthy, Um, not because I thought he was a bad guy, just didn't want another representative from California (laughs) leading up the House of Representatives. But I am very impressed with what he's been able to do. I'm very, if you looked at that room, when they were in the room in the White House, he looked like the only guy that was leading in that entire room. Um, And I've been very impressed what he's been able to accomplish on this issue and others. Right. He has been diligent in how he has moved forward. He has not caved. He has said, our position is our position. Uh, You have to negotiate on this. They're trying to get the RAINS Act, which would pull in the agencies. They're trying to get some work requirements. We've got a terrible problem, and I hear about this from Tennesseans all the time. People that got on benefits during COVID, and then they have kept all those benefits. Absolutely. They are choosing not to, uh, they've, they've 
learn to uh, work on a part-time basis. And so they're, um, they're being paid or they're working off the books. If they're keeping those EBT cards, they're keeping that um, health insurance and those other benefits. And whether it's physicians or, or individuals in grocery stores, we are hearing about this and the abuse of the system. And, uh, you know, transfer payments, I was reading um, some analysis that Phil Graham, former Senator Phil Graham, had done, who, and as you know, wonderful, brilliant economist. And they were looking at the total amount of transfer payments to a family is right now about $45,000 if you look at these benefits in total. And Martha, that's a lot of money. That is why a lot of your listeners will say, yes, we hear from people, well, we can make more staying at home than we could if we got a full-time job. So we're going to continue with the unemployment route and work off the books. And that they feel that gives them more spendable income. And, of course, those benefits coming to them are coming out of the taxpayer's pocket. And right now the debt per citizen in this country is of about $95,000. And that's your portion of the debt. And that's a substantial, so, substantial increase. Oh, my goodness, yes. You know, it has gone up substantially since COVID and uh, this administration. This administration in two and a half years alone has added upwards of $5 trillion to the national debt. Now, I know you've been, wor- you've been working very hard on the Kids Online Safety Act, and um, it's making some progress. Tell us about it. Yes, we've had a lot of progress on this. Senator Blumenthal and I have worked in a bipartisan way for about the last three years on this legislation. And Martha, uh, we've done this because we've heard from, we were doing some hearings in our committee that we lead on the impact of kids on social media. And after the first hearing, it was like the floodgates opened. And we started hearing from parents all over the country saying, let us tell you our story, what happened to our child. And so um, we continued these hearings, did a total of five, drafted the legislation. It came out of committee last year on a full unanimous vote, which is nearly unheard of. Clock runs out on this. We don't get it finished before the end of the year. We have refiled it this year, and we have 33 of the 100 senators as original co-sponsors on this bill. Unheard of. And we are thrilled to have so much bipartisan support on this legislation. And the Kids Online Safety Act puts the responsibility on social media to design their platforms for safety and to allow safety by default. In other words, their safety settings will be at the highest level. They also have to make their algorithms available to parents so they can turn these off and their children are not going to constantly be fed uh, some of these postings and videos that promote suicide, um, and that 
allowed them to meet drug dealers and pedophiles and sex traffickers that allow cyberbullying. And then they also will have to allow a portal for your parents and kids to report content and it requires social media gives them a given period of time to respond to get these postings down right now parents that take for instance tiktok challenge we've got a mom whose son died by accident doing one of these tiktok choking challenges and we've talked to more than one or two moms whose children have died doing these challenges. And Martha, they report these to the social media platform, but the platform sometimes never responds, and sometimes they respond and say, the mentioned content does not violate our community standards. Well, let me tell you something. Anything that is child enticement, child endangerment, is a felony. It is a crime, and that kind of information has to be taken off the Internet. So we are uh, fully aware that social media has resisted this. Their army of lawyers and lobbyists fight us every day, but we're going to continue to push it. We think we'll get this out of the Senate and hopefully to the president's desk by the time uh, the kids go back to school. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Nancy Mace, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you for having me today. It is so great to have you back because you are one of those voices that not only is a strong conservative, but you also Mm -hmm. live in the real world where Mm -hmm. you know you have to have conversations with people that might not be as conservative as you are about things. Right. And if we want to get things done and deliver results for our states and our districts, we have to reach across the aisle. That's the only way this works. So several things I want to get to today. First of all, last week you were involved in a press conference um, related to the Hunter Biden investigation. Is anything happening with that? And and how was that received? We are moving forward with our investigation. We are moving forward with information from whistleblowers, regardless of what mainstream media wants to say. They want to deflect and say that none of what we've put forth includes Joe Biden. But guess what? None of this happens without Joe Biden. And we want to connect the dots and show the American people the information we have when we have it. You'll see more press conferences in the future. You'll see more uh, bank records as we get them. Um, We've been stonewalled by the FBI and DOJ. And I believe at the end of our investigation that we will refer charges to the DOJ because we have to follow the facts wherever they take us. And that looks like that's the direction it's headed. And that leads me into my next question related to the Durham report. The Durham report came Mm -hmm. out this week. I'd like to believe that Merrick Garland released the entire report unredacted because he wanted everything out there. Uh, The cynical side of me says that the goal of this report was not to create charges, according to John Durham. So he felt comfortable releasing everything. But either way, the entire report Mm -hmm. was released for everybody to read. Your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I want to say uh, Donald Trump primaried me last year, okay? I was the only Republican in the House to beat him in a primary. So no one can accuse me about the dual report being of being hyperpartisan or being in the tank for Donald Trump. But what they did to the former president 
is wrong, and it should never be done again to any anyone uh, in the future. And the FBI, it seems or appears, was used as a political weapon. This can never happen again. Love him or hate him, Donald Trump, this should never be happening in our country. You know, you mentioned that he ran someone against you in, in your primary, mm-hmm. and you're in um, the first district, right, of South Carolina? Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay, mm-hmm. and so you're a kind of, you're a little redder now after redistricting than you were, but you were pretty like purple one district. point. <laughs> yeah. We're yeah. one point redder, which really, I won by a point and a half when I, when I came in in 2020, flipping the seat from Democrat to Republican, and then the state legislature made it a point and a half better. We should have won by two to three points last year. We ended up winning by 14. And I think issues that we talk about, the way we talk about issues really matters in this country, particularly when independent voters outnumber Republicans. Well, independent voters outnumber everybody now. Mm -hmm. The last poll Mm -hmm. I saw said that half of America says they're an independent voter. I mean, I think that says a lot about what people think about parties. They do. And I'd say in our district, we have about 40% of voters are independent voters a third are Republican and just under a third are Democrat. And if I if I had a dollar for every time I heard someone in South Carolina say to me, I didn't leave the party, the party left me, I'd be as rich as Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> I mean, I just, so many people, I hear it every single day. Absolutely. That's funny, um, as rich as Nancy Pelosi, because people don't realize mm-hmm. how rich she is. She is very, oh my very gosh. rich. Um, so let's mm-hmm. talk about the debt ceiling. Um, you know, it does seem like uh, the Democratic ca- I mean, first of all, a whole bunch of members of the Democratic House are talking about this now, but y'all have already had a vote. OK, so this is a done a deal mm-hmm. in the House. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on where this negotiation is right now? Well, my my first thought is that we need a president who's going to be at the table negotiating. Joe Biden left the country. If we are in such dire straits, if we're on the brink of default, why the heck are you leaving the United States of America during this time? He ought to come back to the country. He ought to be at the table and negotiating with both sides of the aisle. I mean, can you imagine Donald Trump or any other Republican president shirking their responsibilities and leaving the country during such a critical time? You can't do that. And so I think 24 is very important, but I also want to acknowledge that it's been Republicans and Democrats alike that put us in this situation. Under Donald Trump, he added $8 trillion to the debt. Under Joe Biden today, he added $4 trillion. That's $12 trillion just over the last six years, which is why I've been screaming from the rooftops. This is both parties' fault. Both parties need to sit down and figure it out. I have a plan that would balance the budget in five years. That's a bit too aggressive for the establishment up here in D.C., but right now I would take 20 years. Come up with a plan that's responsible, that puts the, our, our folks in retirement and Social Security and our veterans first, and, and that we don't waste the money we've been wasting over the last few years. It's, it's incredible to me that they just want to punt the ball both sides and blame the other when it's both, both parties' fault that we're in this situation today. You know, Senator Johnny Isaacson, who passed away last year, um, had for a number of years in the Senate a biennial budget proposal. And it was more like what they do in Texas, where you do a two-year budget. I know, don't laugh. You can't even do a one-year budget. But you do a Mm -hmm. two-year budget. And then in the off years, you do that kind of oversight. Because there's a lot of talk about this clawing back the COVID money, which I think is, you know, low We're never going to get that money back. Yeah. But But, I mean, the states are just going to use it on something else but But, 
but the thing is, that's the dirty little secret, Nancy, is the states really mm-hmm. don't want you to balance the budget because then they don't get. I love Georgia. We balance our budget every year, but we also get mm-hmm. about $30 billion from the federal government every year. And so if you guys get your house in order, we might not get as much of that money. And I'm not blaming us. I'm just saying that's mm-hmm. the way states get touted for balancing their budget every year. But they're also getting money from the feds who don't balance their budget every year. And we've got right. to really have these discussions because balancing a budget or at least having a regular order budget process has got to be job one. Has to be job one. And the other thing that I am bringing up this week, too, is that we have 52 percent of the federal workforce who are not showing up to work. Let's start with those employees and get rid of them. Like if you're not going to show up and do your job, you don't have a job. That's how it works in the private sector. That's how it ought to work in the public sector. Well, the IRS, they just went back to work starting May 8th through June 25th. And so, you know, it's crazy. They've been out of the office for three years. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't need 87,000 more agents. What we need is customer service people that will actually answer the phone and take taxpayers' questions. 100%. You go over to the Department of Transportation, they're not there either. I mean, good luck getting a passport these days also because, uh, you know, there's there's such a backlog and employees aren't showing up to work. But if we were not to show up to work at our jobs in the private sector, you wouldn't have a job. But yet the federal government gets special privileges that nobody else, no other hardworking American gets. And there's no accountability. There's no ownership. There's no transparency. And this is why we're in the dire straits we are today with $32 trillion in debt. So I went back to school in 2016 um, and got my master's degree in American politics. And my thesis was on women's electoral success in the Republican Party. Um, Chuck Bullock, who is a very well-known political scientist, uh, was the one that encouraged me to go back to school. And I was going to look into women in politics. And he said, Martha, you need to look at your party because you have a problem Mm -hmm. in your party. So Mm -hmm. I did the work. It took me five years instead of two because I was working and going to school, you know, and all of that. But I looked at your race as well as several of the other ones uh, that were in Mm -hmm. that time period. uh, And we have made great strides in getting women elected in the Republican Party. Is there, and it seems like Kevin McCarthy supports that, that he is supporting strong women. He does. He does. Where, Where are we in that? Well, uh, without Kevin's leadership, without Kevin's support, I wouldn't be where I am today. He endorsed me in 2020 during my Republican primary, which is very rare for someone in our party and leadership to do. But he also understood that our district is just a little bit different. We march the beat of our own drum. We have a very much an independent streak, a, a libertarian streak. And he recognized that my brand of Republicanism can bring in independent voters and could win this seat back. So I would not be here today if it were not for Kevin McCarthy, number one. But we do have more strides to go, especially after Roe v. Wade was turned over. I am a pro-life Republican, but I also understand that we need to, to have a more compassionate message for women. We need to balance the right to life with women's rights. And none of us in our party right now can even, you know, talk about birth control (laughs) and we're banning abortion everywhere, but we're not having this conversation about women's access to prenatal care, adoption services, foster care, child care, birth control, all these things. And I've gotten support from him up here on some of the bills that I'm working on. I'm working on legislation that would help process rape kits faster across the country. He gets it. We just got to bring some other folks along too within our party and recognize this is going to be a continuing issue for us.
electorally, especially going into 24, and I'm grateful for Kevin's leadership. Well, I'd love to work with you on some of those issues and expanding Mm -hmm. some of those discussions into Georgia and other places, because I I agree with you on that. We've got to be able to sit down at the table and have more um, compassionate, empathetic conversations Mm -hmm. about the whole total picture of what being pro-life is because yes. it's there's a whole picture involved so i'd love to talk to you more about that nancy mace if people want to get in touch with you or if they uh, need anything from your office how can they do that um, they can go to nancymace.org and learn all about the biden investigation and other issues that we're covering uh day to day absolutely representative mace thank you so much to, for your service to our country and thank you for being here today Thank you. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.